0: We go into the Christmas season with the idea that what we want to do is we want to think about Christmas because it gets so busy and we get so preoccupied. So I opted this year to do a series that's called The Scenes of Christmas. We started with two of those last week, and today I want to head up to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter one, towards the end. And the reason I'm doing this series is a recent poll in America was done, and they asked individuals, How many of you are Christian? Eighty-eight percent of those who were approached said we're Christian. Now, understand, that means they said that they believe basic Christian truths. Not necessarily that they're born again, but they could be of any denomination that's in the Christian realm. And they asked those individuals a follow-up question. They asked them, what is the most important focus of Christmas? For you, when you think about Christmas, what do you focus upon? And the individuals respond with a wide variety of things. Family gatherings, gift giving, eating, traveling, vacation time, getting off of school. But then there was a group that said that to them, one of the major focuses is celebrating the birth of Christ. The part that you and I would look and say, that's good. The sad part of it is, of those who are polled, only 37% said that the most important part of Christmas is Jesus Christ and celebrating his birth. That brings me to the, remember how one church dealt with it. They were doing a Christmas play, a Christmas pageant, and the night before they were to do it, they were doing their last rehearsal, and a mother called and said, hey, one of the kids who was supposed to be in it was supposed to be Joseph. He got sick with a fever. He can't come. Well, the director, the writer of, the, of that, that whole scene said, that's easy. We'll take care of it. We'll just write Joseph out because he won't be a major part of the story anyway. And I'm talking about Joseph this morning, but I think many people have even gotten to the point that they write Christ out of their Christmas, that they don't think about Christ in the midst of everything else. That's why I think it's important we pause this December and do a few of those messages that talk about what about Christmas? What is it about? Let's refresh our minds and our spirits going back to those original stories and just d- d- trying to dig deeper and find out what they, what they mean. When we're approaching Joseph's story this morning, we need to set the stage and say, where's the writer coming from? The writer is a Jew, Matthew, writing to Jews. And so when he's presenting the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew, understand there's only Matthew and Luke that do it. Matthew has a purpose. He's writing to Jewish people, trying to convince them Jesus is the predicted Messiah. So what he emphasizes as he is writing is several very important Jewish considerations. For instance, when he writes Matthew more than anybody else, is going to talk about all the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled when Jesus came. And he's going to mention those specifically about the birth of Christ. There's 300 in the entire life of Christ. But in the Christmas story, he highlights several of those. Just to prove that Jesus was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Matthew is going to also write to Jews who understand miracles, who look for signs. He's going to mention several that aren't mentioned in other accounts. He's going to mention the angel, the miracle star. He's going to mention the heavenly visions. He's going to talk about the virgin birth. He's going to talk about how God protected this child by sending an angel and having them move to Egypt and come back. And so he wants us to understand that Jesus is of the lineage of David and Abraham. Go back to the very first verse of Matthew. He starts off saying, Jesus is from Abraham. Jesus is from uh, the line of David. Very important to the Jews. As he's writing to the Jews, he also wants to make sure that they understand that Jesus was recognized by Gentiles. That even the Gentiles understand who he was. So therefore, Matthew includes the story of the wise men, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. He presents Jesus as having a unique birth, and Luke does as well, but here we get that whole idea that Jesus was virgin born, virgin conceived, that he was the fulfillment of a prophecy that predicted this would be the case some 600 years, and then he makes a comment in the passage that we'll read in a moment that he says his name is Jesus, he'll also be called God with us. He's Emmanuel. The Jews would understand all this. They would, they would say, yeah, this is important. This is vital. This gives us a lot of information about Jesus and proof that he's Messiah. So what happens is Matthew adds some of these details, but also some things that we don't find in any of the other Gospels. We never find a wise man's visit anywhere else. We don't find about Herod's attempt to kill Jesus anywhere else. We don't find anywhere else talk about Jesus and Mary and Joseph having to go to Egypt and come up out of Egypt to fulfill prophecy. We don't figure out anywhere else how is it that they left Nazareth, go down to Bethlehem, stay in Bethlehem for a while, and then they end up back in Nazareth because he has to be called a Nazarene. And so Matthew gives us all that details. There is one story that we only find in Matthew, and that I'd like to read to you this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and then I'd like to share some thoughts from there. Matthew 1, verse 18, if you'd follow along, please. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband... Being a just man and not willing to make her a public example was of the mind to put her away privately. And we should add here, he doesn't know at that moment. He doesn't know how she got pregnant, that it's God's miracle child. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost." And knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. As we look at the account, we learn several things about Joseph. Some things that are here or elsewhere, but let's just write these down before we go any further. What I learn about Joseph is he's mentioned 17 times in the Gospels, nowhere else in the Scriptures. What I find out when we open up this story, he's a spouser, he's engaged to marry, to be married. What I learned from this account is this, he's probably very young. Uh, We mentioned this last Sunday night, if you were there or you followed online, that in this time, in that stage, that usually couples who were of the Hebrew background of that ancient Near East section, the girls were either 13 to 17 when they got married. The guys were anywhere from that 16 to 20. And so he's probably in that age group. Everything seems to be normal type of peoples. As well, he's probably from Nazareth. The reason that it's, it's, we say this, even though it's never mentioned, he's from Nazareth at this point, is she is talked about in Luke as being from Nazareth. And if he's engaged to her and has met her and found her, he's probably living in Nazareth as well. So it makes perfect sense. Plus, they have to travel some, from somewhere down to Bethlehem. And so we assume he's in that area. We uh, assume as well he's not very wealthy. Even though he's got a business... He doesn't have much because when Jesus Christ is birthed and come the eighth day where they have to make sacrifice, they give what's called the poor man's offering, the two turtle doves. So he's probably not real wealthy. We figure he's a carpenter. We're not sure about this one. The word tekton is literally the word craftsman. It could be a stone cutter, it could be somebody who's building of uh, of either stone or wood, but most people have historically said he's a carpenter working in some way with his hands like that. We also know this from the account, is that he really must love Mary. That even though families were involved in arranging these things, according to Jewish writings, a parent couldn't force their child to marry somebody they didn't love if they didn't want to be married to that person. That was a Jewish thought. And so even though families are involved with arranging and families are involved with with making some of the preparations, Joseph must have had feelings for Mary because when she's found out he's kind enough that he wants to put her away privately, not public, I'll get to that in a moment and it'll make more sense. We also find out this, and I want to pause on this because this is so critical. It says in verse 19, Joseph, her husband, was a just man. The word is righteous, frequently translated that way. It is the idea of having a right relationship with God. When we find that word used in the New Testament to try to just put it together and understand where Joseph's coming from, we run into the Gospel of Romans. And in the Gospel of Romans, it talks about how many righteous people there are. Joseph's called righteous, But the word of God says, as it is written, there's how many righteous? There's none. No, not one. In fact, God's word, expanding upon the Old Testament, says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Does that include Joseph? Yes, it does. So how is it Joseph, he's part of the all who have sinned, he's part of the none who are righteous, how is it that according to verse 19, he's called just or literally a righteous man? The same word. It's because well, I should say, it's not because Joseph was one who did enough to get God's pleasure and approval and worked his way into God's mercy. We read, therefore by the deeds of the law shall no person be justified in God's sight. So back in those days, no matter how much sacrifice or how many much money he put, that wouldn't get him into heaven. The same as it is today. You get baptized, you go to church, no matter how much you put in the offering, it doesn't wash away your sins. Joseph would have known that he needed just what you and I need. Joseph knows that his sin has separated him from God. He would know he would need a savior. He would need somebody else to bridge that gap between him and God. And he knew from the Old Testament that Messiah, the predicted one, was the one who would come and bridge this gap. So Joseph had to do what the other Old Testament saints did in order to get into heaven. We read about one of those in Romans chapter 4. And to just put it together, jump with me quickly. We'll come back to Matthew. But go to Romans chapter 4 for just a moment here. In Romans chapter 4, there's another saint and it's told how he ends up in heaven. He's an Old Testament saint way before Jesus is born. How does he become justified? Romans chapter 4 talks about Abraham. And Abraham is described in this passage as being justified or being made right with God. We read in verse 21, and referring to Abraham, and being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to Abraham for righteousness. That idea, that same word used for Joseph was a just man. And so we have that idea that the reason that Abraham was justified, talked about in Galatians, is he put his faith in what God would do in the future. How God would provide a Messiah. How God would provide a Savior. How God would provide through that person who would come, who would be sinless, the way for Abraham to get into heaven. Abraham had faith, he believed in God's future promise. But then the passage goes on and says, what about us today? And it says, now it was written for, not for Abraham's sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe. Believe what? Now we have more of the details. We look back on who that Messiah was. That if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our right relationship with God. Go back another chapter in the book of Romans and see how he just expands upon this. Go back to chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Watch the next verse after that. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a payment, propitiation, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in God the way that we get saved today. Is we look back on what Jesus did. We believe that he died, buried, and resurrected for us. And when we put our faith and trust in him being our savior. God justifies us. God gives us his righteousness. Not that we can earn it on our own. We can't. But if we put our faith in Christ. God gives us the righteousness that is needed to get into heaven. We believe by faith. That's what Joseph did looking forward to whoever this Messiah would be. And he put his faith already in God's provision. If you have never done that, you need to do that today. You need to understand that the Christ child who came, that we celebrate his birth, he is the Savior and no man comes unto the Father but by him. You need to call upon him, for there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what Joseph had done. Joseph, when we come to this story where Joseph is called just man, we know he was a believer. A believer the way many of you here have believed. You've put your faith in God's provision through his Messiah. He did it future, we just do it with past, looking back. And as a believer, if you go a little bit further in this text, he had a really good faith. Because when the angel came, came, came to him, as we already read, he doesn't do what Zacharias did that we looked at last week. Zacharias said, I don't understand how this is going to work. Give me a sign. Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph hears about a miracle birth and doesn't even question whatsoever. He's a guy with pretty strong faith. He's a believer who has strong faith. But then what I want to focus on is he is asked to take several steps that are really, really hard. See, a lot of you sitting here, a lot of you watching, you're believers already. A lot of you have strong faith. But God also wants you to move forward. He wants you to take some of the very same steps that we're going to see Joseph took. And so hang with me this morning as I go through and just say, here's one of the hard steps that Joseph was asked to take. And we're going to point out several of them and then come back and say, what about you? What about if God, and God does, ask you to take these steps, how are you going to handle it? Step number one that Joseph is asked to take, he's asked to do this, give up his pride. Give up his pride. How do I get that out of this text? Well, you have to go back and understand that at this moment, they're engaged. And so when to, to get the full story and get the full gist, go with me back into the time of what we call the A.N.E., the ancient Near East, and understand how they did marriages, how they did engagements. They would have... Couples could get to know each other. But when it came to a point where all of a sudden the guy was really interested, he would get his best man. His best man would go and approach her family on behalf of this man and his family. They would approach the parents, the older brother, whoever. And they would make a proposal. And so his best man could be his parent. It could be a brother. It could be a relative. And the family would now get involved. And so the best man goes to Mary's family, whoever that is. And this best man is going to make the proposal that says, hey, Joseph wants to marry Mary, your daughter, your brother, whatever. He wants to marry her, and he's willing to be able to give a mohar, a dowry, a payment, which would do two things. It would prove that he could take care of her, and it would help pay for the wedding expenses. And so he proposes, and he makes a payment that he wanted to to give to her, and uh, it was a payment that, that was very, very important, and it sealed... The relationship. And so once the payment is made and accepted, these two now, they are engaged. But back in those days, the engagement would last for one year, typically. And then what they would do is they would set a date that he's going to come and he's going to you know, come with a parade. He's going to pick her up and take her back to the parents' house. They would usually set a day and it was usually be a Tuesday because Tuesday was the one day at creation week where it says twice that God said it is good. And so he would show up on that Tuesday, but we don't know what time he's going to show up. He could come in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. So she's got to be ready. Everything's got to be ready to get going. And so when the day was set, he would come. And by the way, in the time that this year is going by, the groom and her would have very limited contact. What he would do during that year, he would be building a house for her. By the way, do you see the pictures, the analogies between Jesus and you? Jesus has made a payment. He sent his best man, John the Baptist. John calls himself that. He sent. He made a payment. He's gone away building a mansion for us, and one day he's going to come and take us to his home. Do you see all the parallels? Yes, no. Okay, very clear. And so during this during this time, this one year before they have the actual marriage feast called the hoopah. I, when I read that, I go hoopah, yeah, here we got this done. Okay, that that's legally binding. And look at the text. He has called her husband, she has called his wife, and they're only engaged. And it was so legally binding at this moment that if he were to die, if the guy dies during engagement, the wife's called a widow. And so it was, it's way, way different than what we have today. But what would happen in this time is if they broke off the engagement, there would have to be a divorce. They're engaged, but it would, it's legal. So there would have to be a bill of divorce that would take place. Now also during this time period, they had to be taking great care and caution of maintaining their sexual integrity, impurity. And so in that culture, they had very strict moral codes. In Galilee, the couple was only allowed to be together for a limited time whenever they saw each other and always in the presence of others to protect the, the purity to make sure that they're being faithful and loyal and pure and waiting until their wedding day to have sexual relationships and so this is all going on and it's happening during this time and all of a sudden the angel says to joseph um hey joseph your wife mary who's your engaged girlfriend yeah, the angel is going to say she's pregnant oh, wait a minute the passage makes it clear, Joseph and her have not had relationships. We also know the backstory from other texts that she is still a virgin. Okay, but in Joseph's mind, Joseph doesn't know that. Because what happened is, remember when in Luke 1, we looked at this last week, when she is told by the angel, you're going to bear a child, it's going to be the Messiah, she leaves. She goes away for three months. She goes to help out. And Joseph wouldn't have thought anything about it because Zachariah and Elizabeth, they needed help. They were elderly. Elizabeth's pregnant. He's got a, this handicap where he's mute and he's unable to hear probably. And so she's going to help. Joseph wouldn't have thought anything that, you know, Mary's running away, hiding. But when she comes back after the three months, it says she was found with child. It got found out. Maybe she's starting to show other people found out. And people are hearing about this. And in that culture, somebody who is pregnant out of wedlock, and remember, even though they're engaged, they're called husband and wife, they have yet to hit the hoopah time, which would be the time of the marriage feast, and then relationships were legal and allowed after that. So what is happening is Joseph finds out, and Joseph knows two facts. These two facts that, as we open the story. He knows she's pregnant, okay, That's fact number one. And he knows it's not mine. Which, what's his assumption? Okay, if it's not mine, it's somebody else's child. His natural conclusion is, she's been immoral. She's been unfaithful. And that's his, that would be anyone's natural reaction in this situation. And a child, a pregnancy out of wedlock, you know, it's a shame and back in those days, it would be just just dramatic. There are ancient writings that tell us that if a woman got pregnant before the hoopah time, if she got pregnant, this would bring great shame on her family. Jewish writings from that time period. Better for her to die than bring this type of disgrace on her family. That was their mindset. And, and if you go back in that, the, the reality is, If she is pregnant out of wedlock and he breaks off, if the guy breaks off, she's probably never getting married because she is tainted, she is used. How does a woman, a single woman, provide for herself in that culture at that time without a husband, without children to care for her? You usually have to go into prostitution or something of that sort. And it would just lead into even worse worse situations. It usually would result in the child also, the illegitimate child, being attacked and accused. And, you know, things being said about the child. That's the culture they're in. That's where they're at at that point. And we do know historically that this is what happened to Mary. That her reputation was ruined. Because people looked at her and they didn't understand. They didn't have the full story or they didn't believe a virgin birth. They thought she was immoral. They thought she had betrayed and violated her vows of purity. In fact, we read in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is preaching years later, the, the critics, the rabbis say, we be not born of fornication, attacking Jesus and his his mother. In fact, we have historical writings from Roman writers that at that time they did their history and they talk about Mary. That she was convicted of adultery and had a child by a certain soldier Uh, And the suggestion is further on that she was raped by this soldier and it was her fault. And so even the Romans wrote about her being immoral. The Jews of that time period wrote this. She who was a descendant of princes and governors played the harlot with a carpenter. Further Jewish writings from back in those days. Miriam, another form of Mary, the hairdresser, had sex with many men. So Mary's reputation because of this situation, it was gone. It was gone. Now, here's the dilemma. What does Joseph do? What does Joseph do with this woman who the community knows she is pregnant out of wedlock? We're not married. He knows it's not his child. He has three options. His option number one is he could do what the Old Testament law said, that at this moment he could bring her before the the leaders of the town and she could be stoned. But I remind you that they're living under Roman rule. Romans wouldn't allow this without their permission but if he were further decades earlier this could be done or he could pursue this or he could do this okay in the ancient near east that's the ane there was common knowledge and expectation guys if you have a girl you're engaged to and she has fooled around you break off the engagement if you don't something's wrong with you that was the normal jewish roman and greek thought The expectation was, you don't have anything to do with this woman anymore. And in fact, you could then put her away publicly. Jewish cultures, he could bring her in before the leaders of the town. He could prove, wouldn't take much, prove she's pregnant, not my child. And he would have a public display, which he gets all of his dowry back, the mohar. Plus the family has to pay him for damages done. He could do that. But Joseph responds and says, I'm going to do this privately. Privately he is, I'm going to get two or three witnesses. I sign a piece of paper, say I want nothing to do with her anymore. We're divorced. I give it to her, and it's quietly done away with. Whatever happens to the dowry, it would be his choice. But Joseph has these options. And Joseph is going for door number two. And saying, this is what I'm going to do. Or he has a third option. He can marry her. He can marry her. If he marries her, what does that do to Joseph? How does that appear to everybody? He's the father. He's, they've been immoral. They've been fooling around. No matter what they say about the angels and all that, those two, yeah, we know all about them. It would be basically an attack on his reputation as well. Oh, and I remind you, is he a businessman within the community? So what's it do to his business? Okay, that's where I'm getting to this point that what happens is Joseph is approached by the angel. He's told the baby is from the Holy Spirit. He believes it. God bless him. He is told, go and marry your wife, your engaged woman. Go marry Mary. And even if others might accuse you, even if others get upset with you, if your family, they, they all of a sudden disown you, which very likely could happen, Okay, we, what you need to do is you need to put away your feelings of pride, your feelings of hurt. That's what he's asked to do. By the way, he's not the only one asked to put away his pride. In, in loyalty to God, he does. But when we bring this to 2020, there are people us who are asked to put away our pride. We are asked to admit that we are sinners. And don't you know people who refuse to do that? Out of their pride, they will refuse to say, I have offended God, I'm a sinner, and I'm on my way to hell. Most people will say, I'm not that bad, I'm better than so-and-so, and it's very hard for people to put away their pride. It's hard for people to follow Christ and to be a devoted disciple because they're going to get ridiculed, they're going to get mocked. But God says, put away your pride. Put away your pride and share his word. But some of us here, we struggle with giving out tracts because somebody might think we're odd. We don't want to share our faith because somebody might get mad with us. Put away your pride. There are some individuals who won't even publicly declare loyalty to Christ by getting baptized because they don't want to get embarrassed looking like, quote-unquote, the drowned rat. But the word of God says, hey, wait a minute, put away your pride. When somebody hurts you, don't be vengeful. Don't try to get back at them. Rather, put away your pride and heap coals of fire upon their head. Forgive them. We are asked to be individuals that esteem others better than ourselves. But our natural tendency is, I want to be noticed. Why is so-and-so noticed and I'm not noticed? We have this tendency that we want others to serve us. Why aren't people doing for me? They do for others, but what about me? Why aren't they serving me? Put away the pride. Put away the pride and end that argument with your siblings that you've held on for years. Put away your pride and stop insisting that you get your own way in your marriage. Put away your pride To be willing to say, I have rights, but I will give up my rights for the sake of the gospel. We are asked, like Joseph, to put away our pride. Surrender it. Give it up. Do you? Will you? Joseph was asked to do something else. Joseph was asked to control his passions. And God asks you to do the same thing. let Let me set the scene. There are some churches that will tell you, Joseph and Mary were of such pure, holy, such difficult, different qualities that they were just the holy family. They wouldn't have anything to do with anything like sex. And they make that whole, uh, that whole idea to be evil and bad. I'm here to tell you this. Mary and Joseph are like everyone else here. They were normal people. Mary and Joseph were normal in that they had children, more children. In fact, we know they had at least six other children the natural way. That they, as a couple, they copulated, she got pregnant, and she bore at least James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and the sisters at least two, because it's plural. But when it says, are they not all with us, could be more sisters. Mary and Joseph had natural attraction and feelings and desires for one another. And good for that. It should be that way. There's nothing wrong with that. And so what we find is in this text that the angel has reminded Joseph, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. In other words, she's to maintain her virginity until after the baby is born. But he's at a three-month point. When they get married, that means for the next six months, though they are legally wed and that the hoopah is done, they are going to have to control their passions. And they did. Look at what it says in verse 25. In verse 25, it makes that comment that it, back in Matthew, that it comments that, that he knew her not. That is the idea. They didn't have physical sexual relations, which were appropriate and proper as a married couple. Having done and completed the marriage hupa. And so they are here, they are, they are refraining to make sure they protect the integrity of anything being said about this virgin birth. And we look at this couple and we say, wow, they control natural desires, natural passions. God has asked you to control your passions as well. In the same area, by the way, when it comes to sexual desires, teenagers, Married folk, God has told us we're supposed to, as believers, control our passions. There's multiple passages that talk about it. There's multiple passages that teach us it's fine for a husband and wife to have physical relationships for a husband and wife. Not for engaged couples or dating couples, but for husbands and wives. And even in the husband and wife, they're to to control their passions to meet the other one's needs. Anything outside of that is condemned in scripture. You, who have normal, natural desires, are told, control your passions this area. But that's not all. You have passions sometime where you get angry. Be angry and sin not. Anger isn't the sin, it's how you handle it, what you do with it. Control it. And we are told that those who are slow to anger are better than the mighty that take a city. We are told that he that is hasty to anger, he extols folly. We know that anger doesn't work the righteousness of God. And yet some here in this room or watching, they struggle with getting angry to the point of of wanting to strike out or saying words you ought not to say because of mitigation from the governor. Because of some other driver. Because they were slow at the register. By the way, get used to it. That's life. We're told to control our passions when it comes to... Oh, you never do this in a Baptist church. Okay. Even how much we eat. That's as much as I can do. Okay. He says, control our appetites. He talks, about, he talks about the control that you have to say something. And this is even on... Okay, somebody put something. i got to respond on Facebook or on something you do realize that even a fool when he holds his peace is counted wise. There is something about that passion of having to speak your mind that you and I are supposed to control. When we talk about controlling passions, any of you ever get worried? Any of you ever get anxious? Having anxieties? He says, don't be anxious for everything. He says, calm down. Calm down. In God we trust, not in the government do we trust. Not in Trump do we trust. We trust in God. Okay. Yes, we may have different ideas and feelings about elections and COVID. But folk, we're not supposed to be worriers. We're to be careful, but we're not supposed to be anxious to lose our joy. When it comes to the idea of desire for things, we live in a society and you're going to get un- inundated these next few weeks with you've got to get this, you've got to get this, you've got to get this because merchants are going to try to get you to buy some way, somehow. The idea to know that the love of money is the root of all evil. Getting things doesn't satisfy. I mean, you know how it works. You spend all this money to give your kids that Christmas gift and what do they play with? The box. Okay. And you go, I shouldn't have okay? Learning, learning in this idea of laziness. We seldom talk about it, but Scripture is loaded with that idea of being lazy. And what a culture right now to foster laziness. You and know, I, we're told to control passions. We could list several more out, but the idea is if we're going to be Joseph's of faith, Individuals who not only believe, but have faith. When God asks us to do the hard things, we're going to do it. He's asked to surrender his pride. He's asked to control his passions. He's asked to broaden his paths. What do I mean by that? He had plans to have a marriage. He had a plan to get married. Probably, no doubt, to have kids. Every time I sit and talk to a couple that has wedding counseling, we always say, have you talked about having children? If they haven't, we make sure they talk about it because it's a very important part with who you're getting married to. Yes? Okay, you, you, parents, you make sure that they, ta- they, they know this. Sure be a shock with he doesn't want kids and she wants 20. Okay, it's going to create problems later. So I hope you're convinced that people need to talk about plans like this. And they have plans. They're normal people. Now he's being asked to all of a sudden broaden your paths. You're thinking about having kids, but I have an idea for you. I would like you to be the dad of Jesus, who is God with us. Joseph, sign up to be the mediator's papa here on earth. That would scare the willies out of me. That would absolutely, I mean... Just the idea that we were going to have kids, period, that was, there was some trepidation in there. And then when the first one came, Tony scared us even more. Wow. Okay. And you all understand why. Okay, you can appreciate that. I mean, seriously, for those of you, and and we've had this once in a while. We've had this once in a while, where people will say, well, uh, you know, I'm going to work in TNT or I'm going to help out. I'll work with the kids and I'll teach a class. And they don't prepare. And they think they can wing it. And they get up and after two minutes they're all done. And the kids are asking questions that they can't answer. Teaching kids is intimidating. You better be prepared and you better take it seriously. That kids not only deserve to be taught well. But if you're not prepared and you're not. You're, they're going to catch you. That, so it's so Teaching kids. In a good way, it's intimidating. It's good. How would you like to be said, oh, and by the way, in your class is the Messiah. And you're going to teach him a Bible verse today. He wrote it. Okay, Who am I to teach this guy? But you do remember Luke chapter 2, he increased in wisdom. So he had to go through the human process of learning. But in the back of your mind is, he knows it all. That would be scary. That would be broadening my path. Didn't God do this frequently? Where all of a sudden he's asking somebody to take on a role that they've never done before? Joseph can't even turn and say, Hey dad, what was it like raising the perfect child? His dad would smack him. Okay, He has nobody to look to. He has no example. But I want you to broaden your path. God did that to to people in the Old Testament. Abraham, I want you to bring your child up here and I want you to sacrifice. I've never asked of this before. He doesn't have anybody else he can run to and say, did God's angel stop you at the last minute? When God all of a sudden says, Moses, I want you to do something that you've not done before and it's going to be very hard for you to do. I want you to go back to Egypt where when you left, you were a criminal and you were hunted. I want you to go back and talk to Pharaoh. First time for everything, right? Right? Oh, hey, here, David, I want you. And you and I sit back and say, oh, it was no problem for David. David had fought a lion and a bear, but they didn't fight with armor. Now he's asked to go out and face a nine-foot whatever guy with armor who's leading an army who's a professional soldier. There's an intimidation factor. We, We pick on Jonah, and rightfully so, that he fled. But put it in its perspective. He's asked... To go to a foreign land doesn't speak the language probably. there are enemies. They are killers. And to preach the gospel to them. And we all know. We know that he he ran the other way. And God forced him back into obedience by grace and by mercy. And he went. And God used him. But this would be a first. It was a first uh, for Peter. Who else? I'm sure in all this fishing experience, I don't think Peter got out of a boat before and walked on water. I may be wrong, okay, but I'm pretty certain that Peter didn't know, hey, how'd you do it? You know, when you got out, what did you do? And God's asking step out, step out. We know he struggled and we understand. We understand that because it would intimidate us too. The disciples are asked to go and preach the gospel. Some of these guys never left the village, They they had hung around Galilee their entire life, and all of a sudden they're asked to go to foreign lands, speak in another language, that all of a sudden they're to to be going and traveling, and it would be scary. It would be intimidating. And God asks us to do stuff that some of you, the first time you did it, it scared you. You've never done fasting before. you you never witnessed before. you never forgave properly before. you never tithed before. All of a sudden, you're asked to memorize scripture. You've not done that before. Or maybe you've yet to do it. Maybe, maybe you're, you're, you've never yet really focused on controlling your tongue. Well, this is a good season to do something God's asking you to do that for you might be the first time, and it's hard. Broaden your paths. Take on something that God wants you to do that you've been putting off and putting off and putting off. Get involved with serving. Get involved with, with dealing with neighbors. Get involved with visiting with a widow. You say, well, it's really hard in COVID. Stop using COVID as an excuse. You can minister to people by calling them, by getting at the front door and keeping distance. It's just say you don't want to. But they're hungering for it. And God is looking for people who are willing to take the step and broaden the path. Would you do it? He's asked, surrender pride. He's asked, control the passions. He's asked to broaden the paths. He has asked, this final thought. He has asked, adjust your plans. Be flexible. Be flexible. The reason I say that is this. He had plans for a normal life. God wanted something very different. He's willing to take the baby. But, caution, he knows if he says yes to the baby that it's going to cost him right now. He knows that. But he doesn't know what it's going to be like later. You and I, we know the rest of the story. We know all that's happened. He doesn't. But he's taking it in his mind, I will broaden my path, become this earthly supervisor, trainer, earthly protector. But it's going to mean I'm going to have to be flexible later on. I'm going to have to change. And the changes that come to him are amazing. Right away, the angel says, by the way, change something that you planned on doing. It's always the dad's right to name the child. It's the dad's thing. You get to put the name on the child, but God says, adjust your plans. I'm naming this one. You obey me, name him Jesus. And then he has to adjust his plans. The plans change that they have to leave Bethlehem. Uh, they have to leave Nazareth to go down to Bethlehem, which we'll talk about tonight and give you some amazing stuff out of that story. That they go to Bethlehem, and then when they get to Bethlehem, which again, you know this, they stay there. He sets up shop. They're there at least two years till the wise men show up. Or they're up to two years, excuse me. They're there till the wise men show up. And then he has to adjust plans again. Because the angel says, you need to leave and you need to flee because people are after your child, the child's life. And the angel tells them to go to what place? Oh yeah, you, you want to go to Egypt. Guys, move to Moscow. That's what he's saying. Go to somewhere where there's the enemy. Like, go and live in China. Go and live in a place you don't want to live in. Go and live in San Francisco. Okay? <laughs> I'll make it even worse. Go live in D.C., okay? And here he is. He's got, he moves after a couple of years. He moves down there. He's there for a while. And then what's God tell him to do? Go back. And he goes back. Do you remember where he goes back to initially? It's one of two places. So you got 50-50 here, okay? He's intending to go back to Bethlehem. But he can't. And where do they end up in? Back, back home in Nazareth, I, and I keep on scratching my head, why didn't he want to go to his home country anymore? Could it be because of all the attack and the criticism that was surrounding them? But he ends up back in Nazareth so that Jesus is called a Nazarene. He, in this period of time, gentlemen, you might appreciate this. Ladies who own businesses, you might appreciate this a whole lot more. He is asked to stop his business and start all over at least three times in almost that many years. Adjust your plans. We are so habitual, we get the same parking spot every Sunday. We are so habitual, when you change seats and you move around, I even say to you, you're throwing me off. Because you've, you've changed spots. We are so habitual, we even get dressed the same way. Our morning hygiene practice is so ritual. Some of us were so in, in sync with doing certain things. We have the same food every time we go to the same restaurant. And God says, wait a minute. Now, Joseph, you need to be one who can adjust your plans. Are you kidding me? Shave my tuft? Yeah. No way. That's not in my plans. And here he is. He's going to do it time and time and time again. He's going to adjust because God asked him to, And every one of these passages you will read, where because the angel said or God said, he did it. There's a a time where God asks you to adjust plans. God, God may be doing it right now. Would you be willing to do something different than what you planned? Would you be willing to change your plans for college and career? And serve me in a different capacity. Would you, be, would you be willing to adjust your schedules? See we've gotten in such routine anymore. That I wonder what's going to happen to church. When we're able to get back together regularly. Some have gotten into the routine. Some in, and online. Great it's wonderful. I'm glad you're doing it for right now. But when there's no longer a need for it. Are you going to come back? When there's no longer uh, the 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 concerns. When there's no longer the, the, you know, I I need to be cautious. Are are you going to come back and worship with us on a Sunday night? When there's another time for the kids to learn and the teens to learn? Are, Are you willing to adjust your plans to put devotions in this week? Are you willing to adjust your plans to all of a sudden, when we're after COVID, to become hospitable? To have people in? Right now, some people are saying, I'm not giving out the gospel. I'm not giving out the gospel. I'm afraid to give out the gospel because somebody I don't want to get too close to them. Well, is that excuse going to continue? Are you going to say, hey, wait a minute, God's word says we're to give out the gospel. I can do it now. That's a falsehood. But are you going to do it later? Are you going to change and adjust? I remind you of this. I remind you of these two thoughts. Doing the will of God is not about your convenience. It's about your obedience. It's about serving God and doing what he says and trusting him. Not being an idiot and jumping off the the pinnacle of the temple. Jesus dealt with that. But if you're an individual who is thinking this, faithfulness tomorrow, I remind you, if you're putting off, that means failure today. If all your faithfulness and service to God is later on, you're failing God today. Joseph is an individual that he was called to do some hard things that believers are called to do. And he did it. There's a group of believers down south. They work in, a, in the University of North Carolina State. I don't think North Carolina State is a bastion of Christian faith. I may be wrong. But I'm guessing it's like most every other secular university. A bunch of believers were challenged by the word of God about giving to Christ. At Christmas, taking a step, doing something more, adjusting, broadening. And here's what they did. A number of them went to other peoples who worked there as well. After their pastor preached a message like that. And they talked to other believers who were part of other churches. And they together put their monies, got a full-page ad out of the university paper, and even in the local paper, and this full-page ad read this. About 500 years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Micah wrote that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, right where Jesus was born. And do you know who knew about this Micah's prophecy? All the religious leaders who advised King Herod. We're told that after Jesus was born, some wise men from the east went to King Herod in Jerusalem. They asked Herod where the Messiah was to be born. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Herod did not know. So he gathered all the chief priests and scribes and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written of the prophet. There are over a hundred such prophecies that describe who this Messiah would be and what he would do. Like a prophetic global positioning satellite pointing out the Messiah, the Christ. The amazing thing is that Jesus fulfilled every one of those prophecies. Before the end of the first century, countless Jews and Gentiles in the Middle East put their faith in him. This Christmas is a good time for you to look at the life and the teachings of Jesus and decide for yourself. A good place to start is by asking God to reveal the truth to you. He will. Open to the section of the Bible called John and begin reading. Then at the bottom. This ad is sponsored by the following North Carolina State faculty and staff who are followers of Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about what it would be like to have a personal relationship with Jesus, feel free to drop by our offices and talk to us at any time. And then they sign their names. I take my hat off to those people. That they were willing to put their name on a line in a place that might cost them. But they were willing. What will you do this Christmas for Christ? When Christ asks you to give up the pride... Control your passions, broaden your paths, adjust your plans. What Christmas gift are you planning to give him this Christmas in light of these items that God has asked for on his list?